love is out there, we tell ourselves. Love is out there and we can find it. All you have to do, as my mom once told me, is slap on a little lipstick and hit the town. But what if the game of love was rigged? We like to pretend that love is a game anyone can play. But our cultural ideas about desirability and beauty and love are so rooted in racism, sexism, and classism, it's hard to see our way out. In 2009, OkCupid released a race report. According to their data, women using the site penalized, their word, Asian and black men. Male non-black users applied a penalty to black women. A follow-up study in 2014 indicated that users had become no more open-minded than they used to be. If anything, the racial bias had intensified. So, much like capitalism, the marriage market has its winners and losers. And those love stories we cling to? They're reciting cultural scripts that so often have little to do with reality. Welcome to This American Ex-Wife. I'm Liz Lenz. In 2021, I read a book titled Veil and Vow, which is a work of sociology examining books and movies that feature Black protagonists and center their search for love and marriage. In the book, author Dr. Anika Henderson so expertly lays out the problem with what she calls marriageocracy the false idea that merit rules the love game. And she traces this problem through political policy and cultural scripts. She specifically focuses on the specter of the single black woman, a figure seen both as destabilizing, but so often forced to remain single through racism endemic in society, high incarceration rates of black men, unequal pay, and student loan debt in African-American communities. These representations of Black women in culture illuminate, as Henderson writes, the ways in which racial isolation, loneliness, and deracialized neoliberal echo chamber mind a well-worn groove of exploiting and policing lonely single African-American women and familial order in African-American communities, while overshadowing more unconventional forms of love and family. Dr. Henderson, she told me to call her Anika, is here to guide us through this Gordian knot of race, love, and culture. Let's get to the show. Dr. Anika Henderson, even though you told me to call you Anika, welcome so much to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. And congratulations on your book. Writing a book is not an easy feat. So I want to say congratulations on that. Well, and congratulations to you too. Your book is so smart. And I always, you know, say to people that like nothing fucks you up, like reading somebody analyzing, you know, culture, like reading an academic analyzing culture. And I don't, I feel like not enough people read academic work, but whenever I do, I'm always like, well, this just ruined me for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's talk. How central is the idea of marriage to political and cultural conversations about Black life in America? 
I think we really have to think about the origin story of marriage, right? So marriage was something that was withheld from a group of people, from Black people, from Black communities, and then kind of dangled, right, as this prized possession is something you should want to have. So it once something is withheld, right, it's, it already kind of makes it a kind of more precious and treasured thing, right, to one. And then post-emancipation, um, it becomes this thing to have, right? It is conferring rights. It is conferring privileges, right? So you can see how it would become um, something to aspire to have. At the same time that you had the Freedmen's Bureau, who, which was enforcing and forcing Black people to uh, commit to marriage and encouraging them um, to commit to marriage because it provides a sense of order in society, right? So if you have all of these stereotypes kind of appended to you, that you are promiscuous, that you are wild, you have these kind of wild and primitive sexual proclivities, marriage becomes this institution that kind of helps to wipe that away. It seems to kind of wipe that away, right? So um, there is some attraction to marriage as an institution for a number of different reasons, right? So washing away these stereotypes, conferring privileges and rights that one didn't have before. And it marks a kind of national belonging, right? So this is the way to enter society. It is the thing that everyone does. And if you have been um, property in a contract, right, before emancipation and then post-emancipation, you are able to sign a contract, right? That is a powerful, powerful symbol. That's a powerful act um, that will confer you with a sense of national belonging. So you can kind of see how it became um, a kind of cornerstone of Black cultural and political life. And so it's just a marker of kind of respectability. I'm an upstanding citizen. I've gotten married. Um, I've done all the things that the Ameri- that are part of the American dream. And yet it's so difficult. Um, and yet our society, there's a, there's a perpetrator here. It's not just like it accidentally became so difficult for Black marriages to stay intact, right? There, there are significant uh, cultural, societal problems working against the Black family. And you talk about some of those in your book, and I'm wondering if you just tell people what those are. Absolutely, absolutely. And I do just want to also say that, you know, on the one hand, you have Black communities um, very much interested in marriage. As I talk about in the book, you have folks like Sojourner Truth, who is apprehensive about the institution and how it provides a kind of cover for violence, right? It She is concerned about it creating her as an object or a, a piece of property again, post-emancipation. And so you have those concerns. And then you have the concerns of, of political activists thinking about like how do how do things like education, unemployment, underemployment really structure what it means to be married and the the kind of path to marriage, right? Like all of these things, lack of childcare, all of these things um create hindrances to healthy marriages. But there's this idea that 
love can conquer all, right, that we have as a society. And uh, we know that's not the case, right? All of these structural things matter, right? So this, there's this idea that, oh, you know, healthy couples just, you know, go out on dates, right? They can take the one partner can take the other partner out on a date. But if you don't have childcare, if you're underemployed, right, you live um, in a neighborhood, a food desert, all of these things provide obstacles to both to marriage and to sustaining healthy marriages. And if we see these kind of disparities in um, black communities compared to other communities, white communities, dominant communities, then we see how um, marriage becomes uh, an, an object that is not attainable for everyone, right? There are obstacles, there are things we need to think about that are restraining or limiting the possibilities for marriage for Black communities. Yes, and you came up with the term marriageocracy. There we go, marriageocracy, which is a portmanteau of marriage and meritocracy. And you argue that love on the free market isn't actually as easily and accessible for all people, which is exactly what you're talking about. And can you explain a little bit more? Because I, I do find that, that it is a concept that's really hard for people to understand because this idea of romance is really just like when, when the myth of sometime around the Victorian era or sometime around maybe perhaps the first or second wave of feminism, we decoupled this idea of marriage from property in our minds, but not in our actual practice. And so that myth of romance has like gripped us so hard. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So I think the apps, the apps are such a great example because, um, you know, we have this imagination of a kind of marriage market um, in our minds, but the apps really make that palpable. Right. So we're swiping on um, people as though they're products, like in the same way I swipe on Target or Amazon. Right. So um, you get this kind of sense of there is a, a market here, but you have um Black female characters in the text I analyzed by by folks by like Terry McMillan and Sister Soldier talking about feeling and negotiating the sense that they are not the most desirable, right? That they are in the wrong bodies, the wrong skin, they have the wrong hair, the wrong whatever, right? Because beauty is power, right? Beauty structures so much of this this kind of market around marriage. And so if beauty is located in very traditional norms, white, cis, blonde, right? Those folks who fall outside of that are not going to have the kind of same equal um, playing field on this kind of market that other folks have. And Black women, these Black female characters and and the films and the novels continue to kind of negotiate that even within um, their communities, right? So there's a character in... Um, Terry McMillan's novel that talks about talks to another character about being light skinned and like how that's able to confer her um, privilege in the marriage market, whereas she as a brown skin uh, character is not does not have the same kind of power in the marriage market. Right. So all of these things create these hierarchies, which means that it's not an equal playing field. Right. So some folks have to negotiate some things that other folks do not. And I remember, I think it was an OKCupid okay study from a few years ago. I don't think they've released another study since that was talking about like 
the people, the women seen as most desirable and black women were at the bottom. And it was like, it was like Asian women were up top. And then, you know, you got your white blonde ladies and then everybody else fell down. It was just, I think, ranking on appearance. I'm sure single mothers are not very desirable. Um, shoot, should have thought about that one. Uh, right. Like there, there is like this, the racist stereotypes of our societies have permeated our romantic minds and made it so that like romance is inaccessible for so many people. And um, black women are the demographic that is most likely to be single too. Yeah. So black women, yeah, talked that the, there was the OK Cupid yeah. study. Yeah. And I believe there was also something that came out in psychology today around black women and their desirability. Right. So that is um, going to create obstacles um, in, in terms of this market, this idea of this marriage market and trying to find a mate um, to, you know, live the rest of your life with. Yeah, there is something, you know, you also point out, too, that like if if these marriages do happen, hooray, but that they also become really um, unsustainable. And you were talking that about that a little bit earlier. Like if you don't have stable employment, it's hard to go out for a date night and maintain the romantic connection and um, and all these other things. And, and I believe you had a line where you're just talking about like the main the maintenance of a marriage is so much work and that work is not spread equally. Right. Like it falls upon in heterosexual couples, it falls upon the female partner. And it, it almost becomes like a full-time job uh, t- to where, you know, just like keeping your family together is is almost unsustainable sometimes. Yeah, it's a, it's a amazing amount of labor that these uh, characters try to maintain relationships. And it could be, you know, um, the conflict could be distance, right? Those are kind of, that's a typical kind of romantic trope. But what the uh, these characters in these novels and these films talk about are like incarceration comes up, right? For mm-hmm. example, in Sister Soldiers, The Coldest Winter Ever, there is um, both explicit and implicit kind of fears around incarcerating the Black men in her community. Her father's incarcerated. Um, the men she dates be uh, are locked up and have to go to prison. And so there's this kind of fear and there's this sense of scarcity that happens. Mm-hmm. And so that makes the work of maintaining a relationship even that much more hard. The stakes are higher. Right. Because I can't I don't know if there'll be another uh, mate for me if I'm looking for a heterosexual um, partnership. Right. In my community. So you have that. And then, as I mentioned before, right, this lack of childcare can make the maintenance of a marriage that much more difficult. Um, unemployment, underemployment makes that maintenance more difficult. And it's often falling on these Black female characters in these relationships to do both that physical labor, but also that emotional labor, right, at the end of the day, right? So that labor labor just becomes, um, in many ways, unsustainable for these characters. There are characters who kind of find ways to manage it and negotiate it, but they're often 
having more privileges and more resources than those those characters who do not have as much as they have. Yeah, it was occurring to me just, you know, listening to the cultural conversation that we're having right now, which we'll get to in a second, but like, but also while reading your book that it's not an accident. It doesn't feel like an accident that marriage has become, uh, isolates women specifically um, and makes them do all this labor because first of all, this is not how relationships have happened throughout history, right? This is a very specific moment in time where we have defined the family unit as one man, one woman, a live, laugh, love sign on the bathroom wall, and like, you know, two kids, Caden and I don't know, Kylie or who the hell ever. But like, and and like, that's not how marriage and families were done. Even, you know, even at the dawn of civilization, it was a community effort. And that when you isolate women from their communities and put them in these, you know, heterosexual relationships and then give them all this labor, it seems to do a couple things. Keep them out of the job market, like, and thwart their otherwise, like, ambitions, right? So that you don't have time to do art. You don't have time to be a full person because you are wife and mother. And that doesn't feel like an accident. It feels like we're doing this on purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If there's a kind of fear, right, if there's a cultural fear that women are, you know, supposedly taking the jobs that men are supposed to have, right, then there is going to be um, some backlash. There's going to be some work done to keep women in the home. Um, And we saw that happen with the pandemic, right? So women are being, you know, working from home, but also trying to manage childcare in the home, right? And so many women um, did not go back into the office or did not go back to work, right? So you have um, these structures, these, and, and these now, you know, the the voices are getting louder around keeping women in the home, right? And really emphasizing the importance of marriage and and traditional family values. We are dismantling um, abortion, right? So we're, we're making all of these things more difficult for women to have lives outside of being wives. <laughs> and also like these these women are, so you talked about how, Women, you know, once they become married and they become isolated, that really provides obstacles to developing relationships with other women as well, which is which is so important. Right. So we have so many narratives about women finding a mate. Right. And that being the end goal, but not about like women finding community with a within um with other women. And that was the reason why I really wanted to look at, for example, Terry McMillan's book, Waiting to Exhale, because really the central character are these four women. Like they exist as characters on their own. But if you look at the cover of that book, it's four women on the on the cover, right? It's not the typical kind of romance or popular fiction novel where it's a it's a man and a woman, right? So part of what that novel and these other texts are working through is like, how can we build these female friendships 
We can look for love and do the courtship thing, right? But also an important part of my identity is my relationship to other women. And so that becomes really important. And, and of course, we see how the culture, um, our nation through policy and, and cultural narratives are trying to keep women from doing that, right? Because that becomes a source of power. I was 21 when I was engaged to a man who was older than me and not too much older, only three years. But at 21, that's a pretty big gap. I had just finished college. I was headed to grad school. I had no money, but we were planning this big old wedding that our parents were helping pay for that they were so excited was happening. Um, things had not been good for a while, but we thought, you know, being engaged and getting married would help um, right before the wedding was going to happen his stepmom got really, really ill. And she was always so kind to me in the four years that I knew them. Um, she had type one diabetes that went out of control uh, after she had developed it after giving birth to her two kids that she loved so much. Um, so she was being shuffled between hospital and the nursing home. And I realized just with horror that her husband was hardly ever there. And he hardly ever brought the kids. I brought the kids when I could, but which wasn't as often as I would have liked. Um, and my fiance wouldn't come sit with her either. He said work was too stressful and it was too hard. And so I, I sat with her, a college student. She didn't know very well um, who she introduced to everyone as her daughter-in-law, which was very sweet of her because she was a very sweet person. But she had run herself ragged for a family that wasn't even with her the whole summer that she died. I mean, we sat and watched the Olympics together. I get a little choked up whenever the Olympics are on now because I think of her. And I just realized as that summer unfolded, I realized that a 21-year-old was more involved in helping to guide this person to death than any of her family members. And I just knew that in any crisis, if I ever got sick, if something were to happen, I would die alone too. And I couldn't imagine that. I didn't want that for me. And it was the first time I had had that realization that I deserved better than that. And so did she. So did she. So I broke my whole life, burned it down, and built a better one. But damn, does it hurt in the process, huh? This isn't the first time we've been here and you do such a great job in the beginning of your book of like set, setting up the scene of talking about like the Defensive Air Marriage Act and the Welfare Reform Act of like how at different points in even recent American history, politically, we've, uh, we've passed laws that have pushed women into these, you know, into this isolating heterosexual marriage. And and why do you think we're having that comeback again? And I feel like this past week, like everything I wanted to talk to you about was like popping up in the Atlantic, like popping up in the New York Times. And David Brooks is like, I don't understand why people don't get married. And you're like, sir, you divorced your wife to marry your assistant. Like, come on. Um, <laughs> It's okay. Uh, he'll never listen to this podcast. But like, it, it does kind of feel like we have been here before. Why are we still here? Please tell us. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. So I think 
we always have to think about how this the the ebb and flow of this of this narrative of freedom and liberation right so if there are just a couple small incremental steps forward there's going to be some pushback there's going to be folks on the other side who want to take like seven steps backward, right? So every time there's a little bit of progress, um, there's going to be a backlash. And so um, you you see the progress both politically and in our cultural narratives, right? So we have what we imagine to be a kind of symbol of progress, which is um, electing a Black president, electing a Black um, vice president, right? And we, you can look at cultural narratives, right? And I'm thinking about um, shows like Pose, for example, for example, right? Where we're seeing different kinds of representation in both our kind of political sphere, but it, but also in our pop cultural sphere. And so, you know, folks on the right are mad. They're banning books, right? They want to, um, or they have. Um, dismantle reproductive choice and justice. So there is this kind of um, pushback that has happened and continues to happen each time there is some progress. And so in 1996, um, you have the Defense of Marriage Act, which first uh, criminalizes same-sex marriage, right? So it says a marriage is between a man and a woman, first thing. The second thing it does which is really key here is that it it insists that marriage is the foundation of a successful society, right? So that's 1996. At this during the same year, you have the Welfare Reform Act, which is dismantling social services to, for some of our most vulnerable members of our our communities, right? And arguing and putting forth this image of a kind of black welfare queen who is taking too much from the state, too much money from the state and using it for unnecessary um, things, for cars, for furs, for jewels, right? So on the one hand, the state, the nation is telling us that marriage is the the foundation for a successful society, and then saying stop relying on the state for your help, right? So the your help should come from this private, um, so called private institution, which is marriage. You just need to get married, right? You just need to get married, and that will resolve all of your problems. So marriage becomes the thing used as the kind of remedy to to get rid of inequality and disparities in education, unemployment, incarceration, all of these things. Uh, Marriage becomes this kind of large grand solution, uh, which we know does does not work and puts pressure on women, especially Black women, to sustain these marriages, right? Because the state is telling them, this is the this is the solution to all of your problems. So you have these kind of the characters in these, the books and films I analyze really trying to negotiate that, feeling like, you know, actually marriage isn't solving the problems in, um, in society, right? I have uh, a spouse and mate who is underemployed, can't find a job. How is marriage supposed to kind of fix that? So you have them kind of negotiating these this tension over and over again. Right. And like you said before, like, you know, there's there's problems that cannot be solved with marriage, like, you know, high incarceration rates and state sponsored violence. Right. Which targets black men specifically. So you can't like marry your way out of 
like a failure of the the systems of justice and you know our you know our prison system you can't marry your way out of that but we like to pretend you can as a distraction so we don't have to change right and also you know this is coming we're having this conversation again after we had some huge cultural conversations about state-sponsored violence and about how it targets Black people and Black men specifically. And then all of a sudden it's like, LOL, never mind. Let's just get married to figure out all these problems. It just, yeah. And but people love to get married, so it works. You know, people love to be in love. I like to be in love. It's nice. (laughs) But I think this works into something that um, you parse out that um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about, especially in the works that you're analyzing in your books, about the masculine veneer and the so-called epidemic of Black fathers and how it's like such a fraught subject in the masculinity, not just in our culture, but in the works that you've chosen to analyze, which are reflective of our culture and and how that ties into, you know, like even the Bush era or Obama era programs that were just like fatherhood is something we need to promote, which feels a little fraught. Yes, yes, absolutely. Right. So there are all of these narratives, particularly in the 90s, the, the decade that I'm looking at around um, broken families, broken homes, absent Black fathers, um, single Black mothers. Um, We definitely have this kind of legacy of the 1965 Moynihan Report, right, which argues that Black women are a kind of emasculating matriarch. So you still have that kind of legacy living um, in the 90s. And so um, all of these narratives are are, um, playing out in the, the the films and the text that I analyze and masculine veneer comes up because it is, it, it functions as a kind of facade for a lot of the black male characters where they're handsome. They're um, often, this is a trope where they're working class and they're kind of um, down to earth. Right. And so this is um, how they're able to attract like the, the female characters in the, in the text and then what they find, the female characters find it, is that these characters are often or can be violent, right? So they have this kind of veneer or facade of being a great or almost perfect um, character. But there's this kind of underlay of violence in which the, the female characters feel like they have to work with or deal with or endure because there are these narratives, these grand narratives about Black men not being in the home, right? Black fathers being absent and and these homophobic narratives about, oh, what's going to happen to our Black sons if they don't have fathers in the home, right? They're going, they're going to turn gay or they're going to be too effeminate, right? So all of these things are kind of being placed on um, black women and black families to endure a certain kind of experience in order to create these kind of perfect or respectable narratives about black families. And so again and again, you see them kind of negotiating that. Some characters um, want to believe in it, but are, are finding that they 
they can and that others are just kind of rejecting it outright, which is why I think it's just so important to study and think about popular novels because they really are reflecting and mirroring things we're thinking about, things we're negotiating and navigating uh, in our lives. And can you um, tell people who are listening about the Moynihan Report and its impact on influencing our culture? Because it is so powerful. And, you know, in my research, I just kept people kept pointing back to it again and again and again. But I do think it's something that just like the average person doesn't really understand the the chokehold it has on public policy and the way we view black families. Absolutely. Yeah. So in 1965, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan publishes a report that um, argues, insists that it's the so-called emasculating Black mother that is um, ruining Black families first. And also the cause or the catalyst for racial inequality. Right. So we we, sh- we don't need to work on or fix disparities, inequalities, inequities in education and um, redlining, gentrification, like all of these um, other kind of systematic hindrances. We just need to work on uh, these families, black families. And if these black women would just be submissive, if they would just um, not be these emasculating Black women and really kind of reflect so-called dominant culture, then we can resolve racial inequality, right? It becomes a kind of private solution for a public problem. So his policy really shaped both um, political legislation after that and also our cultural narratives about Black women, which show up in um, so many of the texts that, that I analyze where these Black female characters are trying to negotiate being a independent or single mother, but not reflect these kind of awful stereotypes about what it means to be a Black single mother, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so much of what you're analyzing, as you said before, um, are black love and relationships, uh, but from the nineties, do you see cultural depictions changing now? And if so, how are they changing? Yeah. Yeah. I think there've been some really kind of innovative and, um, groundbreaking, portrayals of, of Black romance and Black courtship. I think even in the the narrative space or the, the fictional space of like books and, and novels, we're seeing a lot more representation of LGBTQ kind of romance. We're seeing, um, I'm thinking about Issa Rae's Insecure, which gives us such a, a, a fun and interesting and unique kind of depiction of of black romance and and courtship. So we're just I think we're seeing a lot more um visibility for different kinds that exist outside of kind of heteronormative frame and we're we're seeing um characters like Issa Rae doing something interesting within this kind of heteronormative frame of of black courtship and marriage. So I think there has been a lot of um, quite a bit of change. Some, you know, some kind of familial or familiar narratives about 
them still exist, of course, right? So if you go to like the Lifetime channel or the Hallmark channel, you're going to see some of those. But like a program like Insecure on HBO, it's hard to imagine that happening in the 90s, right? It's hard to see that being a part of the HBO lineup in the 90s. So there has been some, some really interesting changes. Besides insecure, what should be what should we be watching and reading? What what are you excited about these days? <laughs> yeah, so I just watched um I think it's her name is Michelle Boteau, Boteau I think, uh Survival of the Thickest, which is a kind of kind of romantic comedy that's on um Netflix, which is really uh interesting. It doesn't so it's definitely centered on this kind of the search or yeah, the search for a kind of heteronormative romantic relationship, but it doesn't end in marriage and in the way that traditional kind of uh, shows like that would. And she's also showing like, what does it mean um, to, to love her and her body? So I think it's just, it was a kind of a cute, fun uh, show to watch that really disrupts those kind of traditional ideas about the romantic comedy and that um, ending of happily ever after. Okay, here's the tricky part, right? Because what we're talking about, and we've been talking a lot about the institutional and the political, but it still hits really personally. And these are problems, you know, that I, that I often, I think through, but then I have to go live my life, right? And then I have to go, like, it's one thing to say, like, I can be, Powerful. I was just talking with a friend who said to me, she was like, yeah, you can write all you want all day about going out in the world and being a powerful woman in community. She's like, but at the end of the day, people still think less of you because you're not partnered. She's like, you're not getting invited out to couple dinners. Like you're not part of those narratives. And she's like, and she's like, and that's the reality that we have to live with. How do you negotiate these in your personal life, right? Like being, and and I know I'm babbling a little bit, but, you know, I think a lot about like how a lot of my work is like fund a social safety net. Don't push people into marriage, right? Like do this thing, fund the child, get the child care tax credit back, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, I'm still like, oh, I'm so excited to go on a date with this new guy, right? Like how do you, how do we fit the dissonance together in our lives? And I realize this might be a little bit out of the scope of your research, but I'd love to hear you just talk about it a little. Yeah, because when I started this project, I didn't I actually didn't want to think about the political context of marriage. I was like, I want to study and and closely read novels and films and think about the connections between them. But as I read more and more, I was like, something's going on in the background of these novels and these films and this music that I have to I have to explore. Um and it just got so messy and made me so sad <laughs> for the world and and for me and for the um women out there because you just you see how um how this institution is really structured on uh disparity at racist and sexist sexist notions about people about black people so um so that that was frustrating but i think one kind of shift I shift I had to make was to think about 
my own kind of misgivings about a lot of institutions, right? So I know that the um, education, educational institutions were not set up for me, right? But I still um, wanted to try to make my way through it. I wanted to go and get um, a PhD, right? Knowing that education, higher education is not set up for me, that there would be obstacles. It's not going to be an equal playing field and it still is not, right? But I had to kind of try and um, carve my way through it, right? So just for me, the, the shift and thinking about there's so many institutions that aren't set up for me and this is yet another one. I was sad to learn that because I assume, oh, this is the exception, right? All these other things I can, you know, I, I have to kind of endure and suffer through or, or find my way through it. But but marriage, no, no, that, that should be fine. And just doing that research, going through the history, um, there was a moment where it's just, it was so incredibly disappointing to learn it. But I just had to make that shift and think about, you know, so many of these institutions were not... Um, not welcoming to me, but I still had to to make a way. So that's kind of how I began began to to think about it. Yeah, it's really fun um, dating as the woman who's writing the divorce book. I just want to. What do you people? What do you write about? Nothing. I write about hairstyles. Nothing. I write about nothing. Um, thank you so much, Anika. Yeah. No, I think. I think this has been a wonderful conversation. I just think about, you know, marriage is one of those topics that people, um, you know, find to be really sacred. And you can kind of see why, right? People don't want criticism about marriage. And so it, it was, you know, really difficult to kind of have to think about, like, what is, what's wrong? What's ha what are the fractures in this institution? We love weddings. We love all the things. We love the, you know, the bachelorette party. As a culture, we throw so much money at marriage. You know, I, we haven't even talked about the wedding industrial complex, right? Um, we throw so much emphasis and, and money at, at weddings, which is, you know, our, our kind of mark, our image, a symbol of, of marriage. So, um, you know, I can see why people are touchy and sensitive about criticizing marriage, but it does really need to be, we need to think critically about it as we do with other institutions that are founded on inequality. So I'll just, you know, kind of end with that, just thinking about like, what is, what are these institutions doing to us? What kind of um, things are, are they making possible? And what kind of things are they foreclosing for us as a society? This American Ex-Wife is a podcast created by me, Liz Lenz, and Zachary Oren-Smith. He is a man <laughs> who I had to work with. And that is just a political reality we all must deal with in our day-to-day -day lives. If you liked what you heard, <laughs> you can buy my book. Buy the book, This American Ex-Wife, which will be published on February 20th, 2024. Pre-orders are so important and you can pre-order the book through your local bookstore, bookshop.org or wherever books are sold. My friends, my gentle people, 
May the dresses we burn light our way. I'm going to work the rogues into this. The rogues? The rogues. Joe. The rogues, right. That was like eight bits ago. (laughs) You can't keep track of our bits. (laughs) Do our bits mean nothing to you?